All right, guys, welcome to the second episode of the Descent podcast. Um, uh, today, I have a couple of friends joining me, uh, and we're going to talk about music, how we've dealt with COVID and how music has helped, and um, we're going to kick right in. So we've got Steve and Evan. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Hey, Thanks for having me. So, you know, we've kind of had the world be canceled in the last year and a half or so. Um, how has that, uh, how has that been for you guys, you know, with music and, and all of us have just been like huge fans. Um, what have you guys been up to musically? You want to go first, Steve? Uh, yeah. Um, obviously performances got canceled. So a bit of context, Evan and I, we met each other, um, I guess two years ago because we were both playing in an Evanescence tribute band in London. And uh, I had played a gig with them before and then Evan joined a little later and we had another gig lined up and that got canceled. So like actual live performances has been Deadsville um, for a long time. But, uh, but I was uh, last year, like I, um, I, I was recording an EP. Well, not exactly recording. We started, uh, it, was, it was a band I used to have called Stuntmen and we started recording this thing 10 years ago and then life got in the way. And we, like last year, we started mixing it. Mm-hmm. So it's very close. It just needs to be mastered and that'll be ready. So that's kind of been uh, the main thing. And then hunting for a new job. <laughs> How about you, Evan? What's been up with you? Um, well, it's been actually a lot of has happened in that one year, to be honest. Uh, so COVID happened in uh, March, like ish, uh, in, in the UK. So then I, I was actually uh, already planning to come back to Malaysia for a scheduled holiday. And then that holiday ended up being an eternal one, a perpetual one, you know. <laughs> and then uh, because um, I got laid off, and then uh, I mean, at, literally almost everyone in the company I worked for got laid off. And then um, the next time I was back in the UK was in the summer, um, and I literally went back there to pack and then just come back home uh, because obviously at that time there was really no point. Uh, staying in uh, London because I was out of a job and then uh, every London and the UK was in a lockdown anyway so there wasn't really much there so I thought why not come back and then uh, just get on with life and then when the situation actually gets better um, I can always move back and provide that there's an opportunity um, that, so that's work-wise um, Music-wise, it's been great, to be honest. Uh, I, I, I've been telling people that I've never been so productive musically. Um, like, I think this, these, this 12 months was probably uh, the most productive I've been compared to like the number of years I've, I've been playing guitar. So that's kind of good music in a sense because I actually I was very, very productive musically. Yeah. So that's pretty much it for me. Yeah, I mean, so for me, it's been very interesting and I would say productive as well, uh, because I was, whenever I've been in bands, I was always the rhythm player and, you know, very simple stuff uh, was, so I've always had this thing, like, I've never really picked up lead. And so that's what I did. I, st- I started picking up uh, lead playing and, you know, just kind of getting into like a lot of stuff that. I've heard and admired, but like really start paying attention to like, you know, Malmsteen and like all the, the neoclassical stuff. And, um, you know, I've always been a fan of dream theater and just kind of stuff like that. And, and just really understanding it's like a whole other world out there. I mean, you go from technique to 
um, musicality and just kind of building, you know, a whole frame of how you're going to be playing a certain uh, lick. Uh, so it's been it's been amazing for me. I've been, you know, really diving into a world still, you know, still kind of taking my first few steps there. But yeah, it's been a lot of fun. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah, I think I think a lot of musicians probably have a similar story in that, um, like, especially people who gigged for a living, they're like, oh, wait, I've got a whole bunch of time on my hands. I, I've always meant to learn this particular thing. I've always meant to learn that particular thing. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I think a lot of people have had that. Yeah. And and I remember um, just listening to, um, you know, Petrucci is one of my favorite guitarists and like Steve Morrison just getting so demotivated. I'm like, I will never be able to play this stuff. It's um, and and, you know, I, I kind of had a moment where there was a bunch of friends of mine that would reach out they'd be seeing me play on Instagram or like they'd see me play live and be like I just can't do this and I'm like guys I'm playing like four chords right now and open chord stuff you guys can learn this it is not hard and then I was like oh why don't I take my own advice right so it's just a little it's hard work um and you kind of dive into that world but once you start it's just amazing you can't you can't really stop because that progress and as you see being able to like do all these little things it's just amazing <laughs> yeah absolutely Agreed. yeah steve like how how have you know so i'll actually put this question to you how do you how would you say like for musicians are kind of kicking off at a later stage in their life um you know what what do you see as like limitations or like what's i always say the best way is to to attempt to start you're going to fail, but just keep going and get people to get a lot of advice from. That's how I do it. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good question. <clears throat> and um, I'll try to keep my answer short, but I think as you get older, time is probably the most uh, precious resource you have. I mean, just going from like university to a job, all of a sudden you're working like 40 hours a week and you're like, wait, where do those 40 hours go? Those used to be like at least 35 practice hours. <laughs> so what, I mean, uh, uh, the 35 study hours <clears throat> and five practice hours, but um, uh, it's, it's hard. Time is the hardest thing because especially, you know, if you want to get into shred and stuff, there's no two ways about it. You got to get the metronome, make the hard sacrifice sit there all of that so i think if someone's getting in at later life the number one thing to respect is that time is limited and uh you have to understand what it is you want at the end like yeah. do you do you just want to play a few chords at a party if so that's quite achievable if you had like let's say one hour lessons once a week if you want to start playing like dream theater <laughs> That's a long journey. <laughs> Give your kids up for adoption. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, there's no easy your way. Job. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, I, I think, I think set your expectations and uh, I think finding a good teacher also will just shave so many hours off. But like you and I were talking the other day about how you get these new players out there, like Sean and Polyphia and stuff. And these guys are like practically kids and they're shredding like as good as Paul Gilbert, you're like, what the hell's going on here? Like, how do they get to that level so quickly? And I think the answer is they just had YouTube. So at the age of six or seven, which is the point at which they had a lot of time on their hands mm -hmm. um, and, and, and they were still like in that mode of learning, 
they had YouTube and they didn't make a hundred mistakes mm-hmm. because the guy on YouTube said, listen, don't make all those mistakes. Just do this instead. And you just have the most efficient path to the end. So mm-hmm. I think uh, it's easier from that perspective these days. A lot of lessons, uh, a lot yeah. of YouTube content, etc. But be realistic about what you want to achieve and then how much time is going to get you there. I think that that'd be my key advice. Yeah. What do you think, Evan? I mean, you know, I, I, I can resonate with that as well. And I don't think it's all about that quality time that you spend. Even if it's like 20 minutes that you practice, it should just, there's no distraction. That 20 minutes, you're sitting there and, you know, you're paying attention to what you're playing. Just take it easy. Be a little forgiving to yourself. And because you get really demotivated, right? Some of this stuff gets hard. Uh, but yeah, how's it been? Like, what, what do you think? Um, well, personally, I think uh, what uh, Steve said made, made a lot of sense. I think you have to sort of be, obviously, time is an issue for uh, most of us. And then um, I think knowing exactly what you want to achieve, like you, know, if you see that end goal there, then it actually makes it um, much, not to say easier, but at least you're building towards something. You know? And then because I think all of us have, have been through that point where we, we practice and practice and practice and then we think why am i even doing this you know is there like a goal is there a purpose um so then you just spend all those hours like learning a lick and not using them not using it or them ever you know so i think it's very true when uh, you know, steve said uh, you you actually need to know what you want so then you can sort of optimize your practice sessions to to at least try to get you there as soon as possible. Um, yeah. So, but without a goal, that's really not possible. It's just blindly practicing with no progress. There's no way of measuring where you're at. How was I like a month ago versus now? Okay, I'm quicker now, but what does that give me? Am I actually going to use all of that? Um, so, yeah, I think it's very true. And to sort of address what uh, what you said just now about you know not being able to play certain things, I think. Um, in this one year, I sort of realized that all of us are different uh, in a sense. And then sometimes I think your body or at least your fingers just tell you that you're not that kind of player. And um, you sort of have to embrace who you are as a player um, and then just uh, be the best version of yourself. And obviously, because when you start comparing, yeah, you're going to die. It's like, there's no way we're gonna compete with, with the, the rest, especially the young kids. Like these days, like man, like five year old can literally play better than I, I can, and I've been playing for like years. So yeah, absolutely. So I'm actually just repeating what <laughs> Steve said to be, to be honest, and because I absolutely agree with what he said and also what he said as well. Yeah, I think you know it's 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 interesting that we all kind of see it the same way, right? Because we've we've been through some of this. Uh, I mean, we're all at different levels. I've never played with you, but I, I know uh, I know. And you know, I was trying to help a friend learn, and all I got were all of these excuses and the same excuses that I had. And he's just like, "Oh man, my fingers are too big," or you know, uh, I'm like, "You're six foot four. Like, you know, you're like Paul Gilbert. You can probably reach frets that I can't, right? Like, um, and I was like, it is hard at the beginning. And then once you kind of, you have like these weird phases where you kind of start seeing those major improvements. You're like, oh my God, I can play master puppets today. And you know that like the day you hit stuff like that, you're like, uh, okay, this is great. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
I think those little milestones are very important to sort of acknowledge uh, the effort that we put in. I think you also touched on an interesting point about listening to what your body is telling you about what kind of player you can be. Because something I've started realizing in the last few years is, yeah, so we're all in our 30s at this point. Except you, Evan. I, I, you, you, look, oh, you could be anywhere between 23 and 45. <laughs> like, I, I can never tell with you. I, I'm like right in the middle. <laughs> okay. but, yeah. um, you know, in the same way that when you work an office job for a long enough time, you get lower back problems and like your traps hurt and this and that, and all these things start creaking, right? I've started to realize that if I'm not careful, uh, my hand sees up, my pinky finger just doesn't move with the same fluidity as it used to. And even just moving it now, I can feel that it's fighting against me. But, mm. um, but that's, that's not a hard limitation. What it means is in the same way that if you had back problems, you would be doing yoga, you'd be doing stretches, strengthening exercises, you actually have to start thinking a lot more about those sorts of things. So I think that's an interesting barrier that would now that I think about it, if you were in your 30s and you decided to pick up guitar for the first time, there's probably a lot of like muscle tensions in your body that you're going to have to address uh, just to be able to achieve what you want. So things like, I remember um, John Petrucci had this video called Rock Discipline like 20 years ago and everyone watched it and they're like, I want to learn how to play under a glass spoon. And, and, and we learned, but he spent the first 15 minutes of that video just like uh, teaching Warming how to massage up. your palm, your palm, massage your uh, forearms, all of this. And at the time I was like, I was 20, like 19, like my forearms had no issues, but now I get <laughs> the it. The good you know, stuff, like, Mr. Petrucci. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but now I get it. That stuff is definitely important. And yeah. funny story. So like I, I, I haven't played guitar in a little while because I've been focusing on bass a little recently. And um, when you when you said, let's do this, I was like, man, I better practice. And as I was playing some stuff, I would get uh, a sharp pain here in the elbow. <laughs> And it's only because like I've spent years, you know, looking up repetitive strain injury and this and that, that I realized, okay, this comes down to forearm imbalances and all that. So I just had to like um, stretch those out and then also loosen my grip a little bit and just kind of get that up to speed. So I think if you're starting this in your thirties, there's also that little bit of an element that you need to be vaguely aware of, like actually get stretching. Get yourself one of these things. Yes. <laughs> I have one right now. Yeah. Same one. It, it's so so useful and i've actually yes. switched like you know having the guitar on my right lap to like you know having the middle because this Classical. is it's like when you stand and play and it was very uncomfortable at first but it changed the way i play but sorry to interrupt you buddy but yeah <laughs> i was like no i i think we're all agreeing with each other 200 percent at this point but yeah you gotta in the same way that if you if you were in your 30s and you decided to take up a sport you would spend the first half hour warming up, stretching, all of these things. And I think people don't realize, but playing an instrument, especially if you want to start getting into shred, you got you to be doing that stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. And um, sorry, Evan, were you going to say something? Oh, no, I was just going to build on that point. Like, I think as, okay, as important as warm-ups are, I think cooling down, like, you know, those post-guitar practice stretches are important as well. Um, because um, obviously warming up helps and then start uh, we actually break into the guitar quicker but I think uh, what's more important not to say more but what's as important for me is to also do post guitar practice stretches and I actually have like um, 
a foam roller and also like a massage ball that I sort of like roll past my spine after each session because obviously after I mean at our age it's like you don't even have to play for hours all you have to do is play for like 20 minutes and your body starts telling you it's like oh stop doing this to me you know and then so so then I think it's best important to sort of do those post guitar uh, you know, stretches and also massages because it really helps uh, take away those pains uh, because obviously when you play for longer hours you start to feel like oh, your shoulders start to sore a bit and, and I think those post guitar massages just sort of take those pains away it's been working great for me actually so then that's sort of why I can actually keep going day by day without really hurting or anything that's a great point. I'm great point. That's interesting. Any, uh, I've never tried I'm not that. As good as that as I should be. No. So, like, one of the things that I always get is like people talking about gear, and I've, I really couldn't afford gear like when I was learning and stuff until like more recently. Um, and this is the other thing that a lot of people like. Oh, you know, gear like you have a really nice guitar to be able to get. Like, I don't really know about that. Like, because. Even, okay, yes, your pickups and stuff, all of that stuff matters, but then eventually you're going to go in through like a processor or like pedals and then there's the amp you use and, you know, there's so many, but it's just, you play and you get, you get, you play it clean and you'll get like a really nice sound. It might not sound perfect, but I've actually now started to find that the gear feels important to me, like the ergonomics of like certain guitars and I can never play a goddamn telly. Uh, I don't know what it is. It just feels like the most uncomfortable guitar on the planet because it's like very boxy and I don't know, it doesn't have like the belly cut out and stuff. Um, yeah, I just struggle with that. So like, do you guys have any preferred, you know, guitars and stuff that you guys like playing? Warren, you're going to love this. Do you remember this? Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> this is my first guitar. I got this when I was, I don't know, 13, yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah. This is still my number one guitar to this day, believe it or not. Like, Yeah, I was just about to say you use it for everything, no? Everything. Every, every tuning, every song, every style, you still use that. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's I've it's, played so, it's, guitar. <laughs> yes, you have. Oh, my God. And the amount of abuse I used to put this thing through in high school um yeah uh, it's i think w when it comes to gear uh you're absolutely right the ergonomics are going to be super important mm -hmm. like where your where your arm sits and how heavy the thing is like i've got a bass guitar here that weighs like 10 kilos it's crazy yeah like if if i if i play this thing for if i know i'm going to be playing well i'm playing this thing tonight at a gig and I'm going to have to be doing some warm-ups and pull-ups and stuff just to like strengthen my back to deal with it. Bass guitar, what's that? That's like that long ukulele, right? That thing? It's, it's a down-tuned ukulele. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I think you're right. Ergonomics are one thing. And I'm guessing we've all at least tried uh, JP Majesty by now. Evan, you do you own a JP Majesty? I don't, but I own uh, a few JPs. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. I yeah, know yeah. Aaron, you own a Majesty. Yeah. You own maybe two Majesties? One Majesty. Well, I have a JP15 and I, ha I have a Sterling. I have a Sterling Majesty. Oh, yeah. But it's the same ergonomics as the usual yeah. Majesty. It's a neck through. So this is the other thing I noticed with like 
these little things that I've picked up neck through guitars, the sustain on that is absolutely amazing. Um, there's a different feel of bolt-on. It's like more punch, like really, it's got that great attack feel. Um, but I've quite enjoyed neck through guitars and like the access to, you know, the higher frets, oh, it's just insane. I've, I've watched a thousand hours of John Petrucci interviews and like he has put all of science into that one guitar, into every aspect of it. He's, he's, you know, he's like done all when, the science on the wood. Yeah. yeah. You know, like when in the Matrix, when Neo just kind of jacks in, that's kind of like what he's done. And, he, and he's instead <laughs> uploaded all of his brain into this guitar. And that's what was born, essentially. I, there, there were stories about, you know, there's that sort of, um, there's like a, a, a con, concave bend in, in the top of the guitar. And the story goes that he actually put paint onto his arm and then played the guitar and he saw where the paint was thickest. And he's like, well, that's where my arm is rubbing the most. So that's where I need a bit of a concave bend. And yeah. that's how that they put so much science into that. I played it once for an afternoon and that is the most comfortable guitar I've ever played in my life. I So that one was very much an impulse buy. I was at the store and I was there for like two hours. I like, do you want to buy this? And I was like, yes, please. Um, and it's, and you're right. It's like the little things, like everything is so accessible, like within, so I hit like the volume knob, uh, the pickup selector. Um, and the one I played was uh, the full majesty. So it was not like the Sterling. So I had the uh, Paizo, Piezo, whatever you call it, the pickups. And so you hit all of that within one sweep. So, and so the way Petrucci's designed it is just as easy as it can be. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think, uh, like you guys said, I think that a lot of thought was put into um, his guitars and uh, when it comes to ergonomics um, and also positioning of switches and things like that. And it makes a lot of sense. And um, so uh, you were asking about gear. So then I actually primarily play uh, two JP7s. Uh, one is a custom that Ernie Ball built for me. Uh, and then uh, another I'm sorry. one. I'm sorry, record scratch. Ernie Ball built you a guitar? Yeah, like, well, obviously I had to pay for it, but then... Uh, oh, okay, yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure if you know, but I'm actually signed with them, uh, Ernie Ball Music Band. Uh, I didn't know that. I knew, I, I, I think you're signed with Bare Knuckle Pickups. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, I, I, I am, I am. Oh, um, man, amazing. Yeah. So, and Ernie Ball. So Bare Knuckle was like a, a, a more recent thing, and then, uh, but... It was since last year uh, that I was with uh, Ernie Bob, so a uh, music man. So that's those are the guitars I play primarily, um, and it's just okay. I kind of forgot where I was going <laughs> with, with this one. Talking um, about what guitars you have. Ah, okay. Well, so so then we were talking about ergonomics and things like that. Um, so it all makes a lot of sense, and then uh, and. It's, I find it hard to play other guitars now that I've got, gotten used to these guitars uh, because everything just makes so much sense. And because I'm a small guy, I'm like five foot plus. So then I thought the JP7 would be a good idea because of the concave. Uh, because um, when I sit down or when I stand up, there's not much difference uh, in terms of my arm position. Because um, say for example, uh, an extreme example would be like a flying B. You're sort of, uh, playing in one position when you're sitting down, even though you're playing in a classical position, but then your arm is sort of forced to shift to 
to like a different position when you set stand up. Obviously, depending on how high or low you hold the guitar. Uh, but then with the JP, I sort of discovered that regardless of whether I'm sitting down or uh, standing up, like my arm sort of remains the same. And I've just gotten so accustomed to how my guitar feels. Uh, it's so hard to play another guitar now. It's like everything just feels wrong. And and um, I'm the sort of player where I find stuff to blame except for myself. And then I'll be like, no, nah, the bridge is too high, the bridge is too low, <laughs> or things like that. And if I can't play well, it's always a gear's fault, never mind. <laughs> and uh, but then when it comes to the JPs, I've gotten so used to them that um, those problems just disappear uh, because I'm the sort of player where um, every sort of uh, problem gets amplified, even if I'm playing at home. And um, so, yeah, that's just how great the JPs are. And honestly, I haven't actually tried, uh, it's funny to say, because I haven't actually tried the Majesty yet. So um, I'm you know, hoping to, to try it out sometime maybe this year. Oh, yeah, you're, you're not gonna, you're not gonna um, regret that. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it is something, it's the easiest guitar that I've ever played. Yeah. Uh, it was designed that way. Yep. Um, and so you were talking about bare knuckle, bare knuckle pickups. Awesome to hear that you've signed on. Um, I've never played one. I, I don't know what, what kind of, like what that feels like, what the tone is. So, and so what made you kind of gravitate towards those pickups? Um, well, I think bare knuckle have been, like they're sort of known for um, the dynamics because it's also the philosophy of uh, their, their founder, which is Tim Mills. Uh, so he's one person who, regardless of um, the type of pickup he designs, dynamics play a big role. Uh, as opposed to brands like, say, EMG, they're not wrong, but then uh, brands like EMG, sometimes they compress uh, a bit too much. Uh, and that's, uh, I think, what uh, Van Uckel try to avoid. They always make sure, even if it's a high output pickup uh, or a vintage modern or old school rock um, dynamics is always key and you can sort of like really feel that when you play, play those uh, not to say the other pick, other pickups from other brands suck but then I think there's just like that additional sweet thing about band that make me I really like them. I mean, they're not cheap though. I think they're slightly more expensive than uh, standard pickups. Okay, I've um, I used to quite enjoy. I was very happy with Demarzio, and I guess you cannot go wrong. They just make such fantastic pickups. But with the AZ series uh, that I just the Ibanez AZ series, they've got these Hyperion pickups with uh, I think Samer Duncan, really mm -hmm. nice pickups. Um, the cleans sound really really smooth um and you know if you do want to get your high gain tone that's pretty good too so so yeah mm -hmm. um but i've i i actually got the polyphia signature guitar from scotty lepage oh, nice. um yeah and that's got uh, an hss config so that's it's his signature demarzio and then it's got the true velvet single coils both middle and uh neck and those true velvets just sound absolutely amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah, actually speaking of sound, I actually remember I wanted to uh, build on one of the points you made earlier about you know, investing in gear and then having different pickups and what's and some people may question like what's the point if you're going to process it anyway uh, but I think um, it's it's uh, I mean obviously we find every excuse we can to buy more gear but then I think there's like an actual valid reason why <laughs> we, we need like good gear uh, or at least decent gear because I think a good sound or a good or a comfortable guitar, guitar actually inspires you to sort of play better. Um, and if there's a difference because sometimes it's not that you suck, it's just that uh, whatever settings is on the amp, it's just poorly adjusted to um, whatever you're trying to play. And I've realized that over time and then I was like, I used to be like um, not very picky about tone, but then over time uh, as I play more, I sort of I can sort of identify what sort of tones I'm looking for in like a particular situation. And I think good gear doesn't guarantee that. It doesn't get you there immediately, but it sort of makes it a bit easier for you to get to the point you want to be. So I think good gear is fairly important to have. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Re recent, so in preparation for this podcast, I, I was like, oh, I should probably plug in some kind of unit or whatever and the smallest unit i have is a pod 2.0 in a cupboard somewhere i was like let, let, let me plug this thing in and i tried playing it and i was like ah oh, the dynamics are just kind of not there you know i'm just struggling a little bit with this because once you've you know moved on to whatever else it it gets hard but the, I, I picked up my guitar whilst you guys talking about this because um in addition to pickups i think something that's also interesting to people that i encourage people to experiment with is modding uh your pickup combinations and stuff so uh this is uh, my other guitarist and ibanez rg 750 last summer i was reading about all these mods and let me know if you can hear this can you hear that yeah some guitar yeah. okay cool so uh it's an hsh config and uh i i replaced the two parts with push-pull parts so if I hit my volume knob, so I don't know if you can tell, but I just press that down. It now goes into uh, these two turn into singles, so I can get like a little little more clean out of that, right? So check this out. So if I was playing a riff and I wanted a bit of bite on it, so this is full humbuckers. If I want a bit more bite, so I'm on the bridge right now. I'll kick that in. And that's okay. The second part will actually change which half of the pickup you engage. So oh, nice. if I hit this, it goes into the outermost. And then I've, I've uh, uh, well, this when I got this guitar, this switch will actually engage the neck pickup. So no matter what I'm doing, the neck pickup will be engaged. So now what I've got is these two outermost halves engaged. Now listen to the bite on this thing. <laughs> you can hear it snap yeah yeah it's snappy as hell right so yeah. as soon as i got that that was like the next one week worth of oh yeah all the riffs are just like kind of so it's moving towards the bare knuckle sound it's not quite bare knuckle but so this is another really fun thing you can start playing around with and just get a little bit more of your guitar get some more expressiveness in places that you weren't looking for it before well, yeah, definitely. I think there's never like 
uh, I think one can never get enough from the guitar, and I think the only way is to like, sort of smart the hell out of it. Uh, so I think you've done great there. So actually, um, to what Steve was saying, we're all just Ibanez fans here, clearly. So this is like the A series. They actually got something like what what he was talking about was this voicing switch, which kind of um, which you once I think once you switch it on, it's individual single coil. So you actually technically get ten different tones um, of this. So I I'm in love with the AZ series. I mean, it you know it fucks man. Um, the the roasted maple necks. I don't think I can move away from this now. Ever since I've been playing these, it's it's like butter. Uh, it's the smoothest thing. Uh, it's great for the humid the humid weather that. Evan and I live in, uh, so your you know your frets don't get all messed up. So it, it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I never even thought about humidity on a guitar. <laughs> didn't realize that, but it Lucky makes sense you. that that would be a factor. Yeah, God. yeah. So you know, there's this other debate that everyone loves to loves to get into, and I'm not really looking to dissent, no pun intended, into into that which is um, the tone wood debate, like what kind of woods and stuff. And that's something I'm actually, I've kind of started to learn a little bit. And I've found there's some, there are certain woods that help me get the tone that I really need. Um, you know, for the next, I've just been loving maple. Can You can't go wrong. It's, it's a pretty, it's pretty neutral. Um, but, you know, mahogany is quite good for the body or, or uh, base wood um especially for metalheads it's you know it's you can't go really go wrong with that yeah yeah i absolutely i agree and I, I think the unfortunate thing for me is that um the sort of tone woods that i prefer uh that just give me that good sound by default are heavy woods and uh unfortunately they're like the most uncomfortable uncomfortable today and like I said I'm like a small guy and um, I'm only gravitating more towards fast wood because they're just much lighter guitars to play and um, even with those I get aches um, so but if I go for like a word like mahogany obviously I get the tone but uh, it just kills my shoulder you know so that uh, is unfortunately uh, a sacrifice that I sort of chose to to make uh, when it comes to like live gear, but when it comes to recording, I sort of pick whichever that uh, you know I I sort of feel would get me the sound I have in my head. Um, so recording wise, I think it's not that bad. It's just playing live. I sort of have to make that sacrifice for by the comfort of tone. So I obviously I chose the, the, the former. Basswood's a great, great tone. What I, I feel um, the the Scotty LePage guitar is basswood actually. So um, that's actually a good segue. You were talking about uh, gigging, and I'm gonna pull Steve in for this one. Um, can you tell me a little bit about you know your experiences? I mean, the both of you uh, gigging and like the professionalism, and you know what it's like interacting with other musicians when you know back before the world was canceled. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll start with a disclaimer. I'm not a pro musician. I, I dabble, but I'm not pro by any means. Um, I know some people who are pros, and if they watch this, it's going to be like, get out of here, you poser. <laughs> I, so I guess my history is uh, obviously we're playing in, in school and all of that. And I was, 
I was born like my parents are gone so like it was pretty much just written before I was born that I would start playing an instrument at some stage and my dad was and still is a musician very active so I always wanted to be in bands when I got to university I wanted to start an originals band and I started a prog rock band because I love prog rock and uh kept that going for a long long time so even that EP I talked about at the start of this it's 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 from that band like we start recording it need to finish that obviously as you grow a bit older you have to think really hard about whether you want to push an originals band because it's a hard slog man like it's it's not easy you have to build up a fan base you have to be on socials all day long you've got to be organizing tours gigs in other towns and stuff so you have to really think about whether you want to do that but i spent a lot of time either playing in other people's bands or in the last few years mostly doing depping so you're a band your bass player or your guitar player has fallen sick or can't make a gig or whatever so i get a call and i get asked if i can learn the stuff and turn up and with enough advanced notice i can do that um but i do have a full-time job so i have to be realistic i remember years and years ago i you, you asked about professionalism someone had a it was a wedding gig and it was in like a week's time or two weeks and oh yeah horror songs. stories i want to hear these <laughs> oh god i was the horror story in okay this. well there we go <laughs> it was a wedding gig it was in like 10 days so something like this it was very very tight and it was a 40 song set list out of which like oh, i already knew maybe five and yeah. i vaguely sort of knew the next 20 and i absolutely didn't know 15 of them and i was working full-time and i was like yeah, yeah i'll do it i'll do it and I just had all the wrong attitude. Like I was just there to play guitar solos. I was like, I'm here to shred, bro. And there was another guitar player in there. And I was like, oh, but which solos am I going to play? Which solo? I was just focusing on the wrong things. And it goes without saying I got fired. I never actually made it to that gig. But uh, oh, yeah, I, I so learned... you, did, you didn't make it to the gig. It wasn't like they, they fired me, man. Back. Oh, OK, right. Okay. They, yeah, they fired me because I was just there with the wrong attitude, absolutely the wrong attitude. And that was a huge learning experience. And as I've done more and more of this over time, I'm starting to see people who are that age making those same mistakes over and over. So, you know, I think if you're if you're going to like for me doing these deafening gigs and stuff or even just getting into a band at this age, mm -hmm. I think the number one thing people don't realize is time is precious for yeah. everyone there, especially if people in their 30s, time is precious. If they've got kids, time is a negative resource. So you have to really respect the value of other people's time. You got to turn up prepared. You got to turn up with like working gear and all of this kind of stuff. If you had to make notes and you got to read the charts, do that, but do that on your own time. Don't turn up to the room and be like, oh, is it G? Is it F? Uh, I don't know what the chord is. So yeah. I remember when Evan joined the Evanescence band, he was just turning up prepared to everything. I was like, "Whoa, this is nice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> one or two, one or two runs through the song. And then that was that, you know, there was no. Like, this guy's making me look bad. <laughs> <laughs> nah, nah. It was, it was just so nice to work that way. Yeah. You yeah. know, just, just turning up. Everyone's got their stuff together. They're prepared. And interestingly, once you get to that level of preparedness, you actually spend more time tweaking like the overall sound or like maybe turning frequencies down on the guitar and up on the bass. So, you know, that layer of things rather than the actual mm -hmm. playing. That's been really good. But yeah, I'll, I'll, leave, I'll give you one more horror story because this is just the ultimate in horror stories. Drama is so. great, man. It's great for <laughs> podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so 
uh, a few years ago, a friend of mine, he's not a pro musician. He just, he's a guy who just loves to sing. And every year on his birthday, he puts on a gig. And he, uh, and he asked me as a favor to, to do the band. Uh, so I was on drums. And for whatever reason, he got these two uh, kids who were like maybe 19 or something. They were from like the local blues jam scene. So they were going to play bass and guitar. And the bass player was, had, had just started at a music college. So like he wants to make music his thing in life. And the guitar player is just like really enthusiastic about music, but he wasn't going to study it. Anyway, the, I, I said to him, look, I don't really have much time. I got other gigs I can learn stuff for. So can we just plan in one practice? I will turn up 200% prepared. We'll do the gig. Uh, we'll do the practice, get it all done. Three hours should be enough. I think it was like 18 songs or something. And we'll uh, we'll do the gig. We had the first practice. The bass player, the room was booked for three hours. The bass player turned up an hour late. Ooh. And I was, yeah. And he was not prepared at all in every, any way. Like he didn't know what the keys were. He didn't know like what oh, song structures man. were. He didn't know what the chords to anything was. He was like watching the guitar player and he was behind every single chord. We were like, oh, 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 yeah, oh. Oh, oh, yeah, all of this. I was like, this is crazy. What's going on here? And he didn't even seem to realize what was happening. And then I, I spoke to the singer after that practice. I was like, I'm going to be honest with you. This sounded terrible. Like, we can't go and play, even if it's just your family and friends, we can't play like this. This is embarrassing. So, right. Because it to... wasn't, it wasn't a bunch of friends getting together and jamming and then someone screwing up. It was you've booked a room, you've paid. You've paid the studio for three hours. Uh, there are other people singers depending got kids. on each other. So, yeah. Singer's got kids means he has had to organize with his wife, like childcare yeah. for that afternoon. You know, all of these logistics. And that bass player was like 19. He just didn't realize any of this and didn't respect it. Anyway, we then I think they had another practice on their own where like he bucked up his game a little bit. And then we got to the gig and he... It was so late that he missed load in time. He missed sound check. He missed all of that. And he turned up and his bass guitar wasn't working. And I was just like, what the hell? And I was like, this oh, is crazy. And then I think he eventually just like banged the jack with his fist or something like this. And it came back to life. And then he plays the gig and he was maybe like 80% prepared at the end of it all. Anyway, I just had such a crap time because like you just don't enjoy it like when mm -hmm. it's just so much ugh, you know so i remember speaking to him after well i messaged him after i was i was actually fuming actually if i'm honest um i took i tried to take some time to cool down i messaged him I'm like listen i i get it you know it's all a bit of fun and stuff but if you want to make this like a, a professional gig for you if you want to be a musician if you're going to college and stuff you gotta realize that other people's time is precious man like the singer would have you know, he organized childcare, fed his kids early or whatever you have to do to be there on time. He paid money for the practice room. So if you just turn up an hour late because you couldn't be bothered to check the train times in advance, that's not okay. And like, I've made this mistake. I would be fired. Anyway, this guy, I don't know if he understood what I was saying or not, but he just came back super defensive. He's like, yeah, wherever, man, I was prepared. I don't know what you're talking about. All right. Yeah. yeah. I was like, tap out, man. Enough like, said. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Was, this, this guy's like, either he's going to realize what happened here or he's just going to go through life and someone else will slap him down, one of the two. But I think the moral in all of it is the thing I've seen so many times and that I've been guilty of myself in, in, in previous years was respect the value of other people's time. Mm -hmm. like their time is precious. 
um, and you don't know what sacrifices they've had to make to be prepared for this. So be respectful of that. That would be my number one advice. Yeah, that, I think that's really, really good advice. Um, so, like, you know, we've talked about some horror stories. Um, so, Evan, have you got like any good experiences you want to share? Like, you know, like there was this one gig that you performed and maybe it was like a cover band or whatever, but everything just kind of came out just right, you know, and you had that high of getting off of that stage being like, oh man, we fucking nailed this. Damn, like, to be honest, I can't really think of one that where there was no, like, there was no partial horror story to it. It was always because uh, it was always the case where uh, someone was underprepared, someone was late, or uh, someone <laughs> wouldn't show up at practice or show up an hour late and then finish a session until he's got no money to pay for the session. Um, so uh, to be honest, when it comes to band, I've got nothing but horror stories to share. Oh man! Um, <laughs> okay. And 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 it sucks. And I think that was um, one of the reasons why, uh, like you know, Steve, uh, when Veronica and Marco and I met for the first time. I mean, obviously Marco and Veronica, uh, they're in Steve's band. So they met me first before Steve did. I think one of the things that was important to them was how old I was, because I think they didn't want to play with a kid. I mean, I could be completely wrong, but then they wanted someone of at least a certain level of maturity uh, to commit to the band. Uh, and I think that's that was sort of like the right move because I think that sort of maturity comes with like age and obviously we've all made those mistakes before um, but uh, I mean if not all at least most of us have made that mistake of like you know, being like a bad member of the band um, uh, unfortunately for me I, I mean fortunately and also unfortunately I was never that guy I was always uh, committed to whatever um, mm -hmm. band I was into um, uh, and but the painful part about being that person is that you rarely find people who are as committed as you are in the band. Uh, there's always something else. And then you're like thinking, dude, I've got my own stuff going on as well. Uh, and oh, actually, I see a battery beeping. Is that oh, that's, you? that's mine. Yeah. Don't worry about that. Okay. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. If I switch okay. off, I'll just switch back to my, uh, so I've got my camera hooked up, but don't worry about that. Okay, all right. Um, yeah, so it kind of sucked to always be the guy who's sort of responsible and like sensible. And over time, I just realized, so I spent many, many years trying to like, start a band and things like that. And um, in 10 out of 10 cases, they always end up with the same story. Uh, people get too busy uh, and get we go through like five different bases, five different guitarists. Um, and uh, so that's why when I started to really write music again uh, during COVID, I sort of decided that my bandmates are going to be VSTs and plugins <laughs> and I'm not going to play with anyone because there's no one who's going to stand up practice <laughs> or anything like that. They're always going to be reliable. They're probably going to be more reliable than I am. So, um, so yeah, so I sort of gave up on that uh, painful band process but it was a lot of fun when i played uh, with uh Steve because everyone was like, committed everyone would say what they would do and they would show up doing what they said they would and so that was sort of what i really enjoyed uh, with uh, 
togetherness and fire. Um, unfortunately, we never got to play a gig together. Uh, right. But, you know, I think if I were to sort of put like a highlight in like my sort of band days, I think probably with Steve, it was like one of the better ones because everyone was just prepared, professional and committed to the band. I so committed that I feel like I'm the one who's like least committed to the band, which is good because that sort of pushes us, uh, you know, to do better, you know, and yeah. you know, you can't screw up because everyone else is practiced, has practiced enough to show up and play what they need to play. Keeps you on your toes, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Steve, are you going to say something there? I was just gonna say 100% Evan was just such a joy to play with uh, without, without giving away too many details the guitar player we had before you was a lot younger and uh, suff suffered from a lot of the same things that you know you were just pointing out on and they just kind of want to turn up and play solos on everything I want to play solos and that's not what the band was and just kind of wasn't prepared and we had done one gig with that person before and um like they, they, I think they didn't know like two or three of the songs or something. So I just played them one guitar, you know, that, that sort of thing. And so that was why, so I'm going to say something controversial here. I think being in a band, uh, people don't realize, but it can be a very professional endeavor, depending on what you want out of it. If it's just, if you just want to like turn up to a practice room and just get a bit high and like jam, that's a whole different thing. But if, if you actually want to be gigging and you want to put out a quality show, it's a much more professional endeavor than you realize. And a lot of the things that we would do in the workplace, like if you're in the workplace, if you're in an actual job, like you get paid a salary, everything about that situation is geared towards efficiency and respecting other people's time, right? Yeah. You uh, organize meetings in the most efficient way. You send out agendas. You uh, tell people what you're going to do by a certain date. You, you meet your commitments, all of these things, right? And this is so uncool for me to say, but like, if you want to be in a band that's doing well, you have to have a lot of the same qualities. Uh, you have to come in with that sense of professionalism, with that sense of uh, organization, with that sense of like, as Evan said, you know, like saying what you want to commit to and then doing it. So after we had that experience with that previous guitar player, um, I, I said to Veronica and Marco, so they, Veronica is the singer of this band and it's kind of her vision, this whole band. I said to her, like, whoever we get next, we actually need to interview them beforehand, almost like a job interview, just to see like where they're at mentally, what they want out of this. Because if they just kind of want to turn up and drink and party and whatever, that's not going to work out for the rest of us because yeah. the rest of us have like full-time jobs and things. So this is like such an uncool thing for me to say, but you actually have to turn up with a certain sense of professionalism. And, and I've thought about this a little bit and I've, I have this theory that, you know, a lot of people who get into music, especially guitar, but music in general in their teens, like, why do you do it? It's because you saw like Guns N' Roses and you saw Metallica and you saw Nirvana and there's like all these aesthetics of like rock bands who are just like drinking and partying and tours are basically just like, hotel rooms and chicks and like interviews and stuff. And that's all the cool stuff that they advertise. But all of that is marketing. Mm -hmm. what, you for, what you don't see is all the hard work that actually went on underneath. Like Guns N' Roses for all of their public whatever, they're a professional organization. You know, they, they, they're all individually, the musicians, especially when they had like 
uh, Bumblefoot and DJ Ashba and all of those guys. Like those guys are pro level musicians, oh, right? Those guys yeah. were at home, woodshedding, practicing, being ready for the gig, all of this. Like they didn't turn up like with a bottle of Jack Daniels going, I'm here to party, man. Like, no, none of that was happening. Now they might have done that in the marketing, but they didn't do that behind the scenes. But the problem is like when you're 15 and you want to get into this, all you ever see is the marketing. So you're like, that's what I want to be. And music is seen as the antithesis to work. And so you're like, I'm not serious enough for this professional BS. I want to be doing that music stuff. And I and just so want to wear a guitar as low as Headfield did, stand on stage and, you know, just just start yelling, yeah. right? Essentially. So, and it, th that's a really interesting point and something that, um, and I'll be honest, I've been victim to that as well. I'm like that from an attraction point of view, um, there's nothing cooler than a rock star. It's nothing cooler than a dude with a guitar. I'll, I, I mean, I still say that, but if you want to take your love for music seriously, then it's all the stuff that you were talking about. Um, you know, it, it's really kind of also appreciating there are other people involved and you, well, you also want to do right by your love for music. You want to actually create something that you you all enjoy and then look at each other and smile and be like, oh man, we're, we're doing this, right? It's, it's, it's coming out the way we want it. Um, yeah, so I, I definitely agree with that. But yeah, also, so I'm uh, sorry, yeah, uh, but also no one can hold the guitar as low as Headfield except Headfield. I don't, I don't know how he plays so accurately. He's a monster, man. Slash. Slash yeah. is also one of these people. His guitar's down there, and he's still like shredding. How are you doing this, man? Yeah, I can't. I can't do it. Yeah. The and the more and you know we were just talking at the beginning about how I just got in a shred, and like slowly the guitar started being lifted up, and I was just like, I get it now. <laughs> I can't. I just can't play it. <laughs> it's it's worse on bass guitar because like like you know the guy from Toto he plays his oh, uh, whatever his name was Jeff Bucaro no that was the drum Steve Bucaro the the old bass player he, he used to play at this angle yeah I'm like what is up with that man but eventually I came to realize it's because it puts this arm at ease so uh this so like your shoulder is now not like uh lifting or anything your arm is in a neutral position and that's why he does it I was like huh okay it doesn't look cool, but I see why he's doing this. And yeah. then and then there's this like anti-cool where like there's this whole group of people who want to look more and more that way. It's like, can I get glasses with like really thick rims and like sit down in a corner and just play? I think Paul <laughs> Gilbert also plays his guitar pretty low. Um, but the guy's like, you know what, he's he's not human. Let's let's be honest. <laughs> he, he's just he's got these freakishly massive hands and like I don't know. Um, I actually want to talk to you, I mean, talking about Paul Gilbert, um, and I think Steve, you and I were talking about this before, um, alternate picking versus economy picking. Uh, and I had a buddy on, uh, on the, on the previous podcast and he actually taught me economy picking because naturally I used to pick alternate and, and he's like, I realized why you're making your life so difficult <laughs> is you know, you try economy picking. I'm like, what's that? <laughs> and, and he just kind of showed me and I was like, within, you know, a week or so of practicing, I was like, oh my God, I, I don't know why anyone would alternate pick. So do you guys think um, it's, 
a little bit like a lot of the players now that are doing it is it more to flex or is it actually alternate picking could there is a place for it other than in the obvious scenarios there they're in some kind of licks that you cannot do anything but alternate pick but so like evan what are, what are your thoughts on that well i think neither one is better than the other i think it really depends on the situation because um, obviously, apart from the practical aspects like um, uh, ease of access, or uh, I think what's more important is also the tone you get out of it. Because obviously, when you alternate pick or you economy pick, uh, they're going to sound slightly different. And I think it's just a matter of trying to balance those different factors that that sort of determine which is the winner for a particular situation if you get what i mean yeah. uh, so i yeah so i wouldn't say that uh, either one is better uh, i would think which one makes me play that part better and which uh, which way makes it sound better then i'll sort of make the decision okay i'm going to economy pick for uh, alternate pick. Having said that, I'm not much of a shredder, so um, it's uh, in most cases whatever I do uh, is not really for speed. It's more for like uh, the convenience of finishing on the right up or downstroke in preparations for what's coming next. If you get what I mean, because yep. sometimes if you finish on a downstroke, it's a bit hard to get to a downstroke again. Uh, if your if your next uh, riff is gonna start on a downstroke, so I think it's for me it's really a balance, uh, a matter of trying to balance those different factors that determine which one I would use. So I'd agree with pretty much everything you said, except you not being a shredder. Uh, I, I'm, I am I'm far from one. Trust I'm pretty me. sure you you've got some chops, but he lies about I've this. I've got shredder. The lies. only thing the only thing that shreds about me. The only thing, oh well, the only thing about me that shreds are my guitars. <laughs> they shred. I don't. <laughs> they, he's they a, he's a lie of art. But I I've don't. seen it. I've seen it at the yeah. Evanescence practices. Like Evan, know, Evan no wanted way. to play the solos, but every now and then he'd like sweep in the corner. I was like, excuse me, what was that? <laughs> like he just kind of goes in the corners, like no one's looking. He just kind of does his little. Uh, <laughs> he's like, yeah, that's because I can only do it when no one's looking. You know. Yeah, and, and Steve's in, Steve's like, on the oh. other side of the room, going like, I heard you string skip over there. Like I, I know what's happening. Hold out on me. Bro, <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, I I would say I'm so I am an economy picker. I uh, I made a concerted effort when I was about eighteen or nineteen to clean up my technique because I had terrible, terrible technique before, and I landed on economy completely by accident. It wasn't a choice, mm -hmm. and now I'm kind of very locked into it. But I agree with Evan. I think it depends on the tone you want to get because I hear players like Paul Gilbert and stuff with like full alternate. And a lot of Paul Gilbert's playing. Sorry, give me a sec. A lot of Paul Gilbert's playing is about like really hitting the harmonics a lot. Like so, he's he's always just like with with between the thumb and the finger, he's always just like getting a harmonic somewhere. And what I realized with alternate picking is you're more likely to like be able to hit something and get that harmonic out. Whereas mm -hmm. with economy picking, it's all just designed to be really clean. So like it works in some situations, it doesn't in others. 
it all depends on how much time you want to invest in like practicing it, I suppose, and, and mastering both. So it, it's really up to you. And yeah. And so I was actually watching this video. So it's like this, one of these guitars who I um, have really enjoyed listening to is this Japanese guy. Um, I'm forgetting his name. I think his last name is Fujioka. Have you guys ever heard this band called Baby Metal? <laughs> yeah right like the first time i saw that i'm like i don't really know how to feel about what i'm like watching right now um, they were huge for a while they were like playing download festival and stuff they just yeah. they really took off like about 10 years ago and I then they all got into their 20s and it was like no they're too old now <laughs> yeah i still don't know how to feel about what i watch when i see baby metal but the band in the background is like you can tell these guys are incredibly technical um the shit that they were playing you know um like these guys on seven strings and they actually use seven strings and they you know you see them they just put out this amazing amazing music and so one of their guitarists he passed away i think a few years ago but he had this um picking technique where he was just like the way you hold it a lot of times we and you, he's like, there's economy picking. And then there's this kind of picking that he developed where you literally only move your thumb and your index. And he's like, that is like really economizing, you know, your movement and also keeps your tone quite clean when once you get that technique right. Um, I just I just found that really, really interesting. And so there's tons of like videos where he shows how to do that. And you can see it in his playing too. Um, it's just absolutely. And so I've started to learn how to try and do that. And I was like, I, I see what, what they're talking about. It's amazing. I think that actually goes hand in hand with economy picking. Because one of the things is if you're going um, from string to string. So, you know, if I was going, going from, you know, the, going down a string. I don't want to move my whole palm to get to that next note. So I just want to move a tiny bit of my fingers just to get to that, just to get there. Uh, but he's absolutely right. I, and I think, again, I was saying about, you know, I get an elbow pain here. And, and what I realized is that's from actually just tensing up my forearm and stuff. But for all those micro movements, the more you can get out of the finger, the better, because then your, your whole body is just doing less work and you're a bit more relaxed in general. Uh, it, it definitely like I mean when you get into shred everyone's just like economy of motion whether you're alternate picking whether you're whatever picking I mean there are some guys who they've got it so tightened down that their pick won't move a millimeter further than it has to you know it's just the minimum amount of movement yeah I yeah that, I, I don't know how these guys do that's absolutely amazing and I've seen some of these there are some of these monster players and we were talking about this whole new wave, right? Like, cause when we were growing up, we didn't really have YouTube and stuff. And I know we're dating ourselves right now, but that, that just wasn't, it just wasn't there. And there was a lot of picking up by year watching like rewinding and like watching videos and be like that what and I'm telling is not what's happening right now. <laughs> Sorry, Evan, what was that? And torrents as well. Absolutely. Oh my God. Yeah. But but I mean, I don't know about where you are, Evan, in Malaysia, but in Dubai, like the peak internet speed uh, when we were there was something like, I think I, uh, 
I remember roughly benchmark it. If I had to download two and a half megs, that was a 15 minute commitment. Like, so, yeah. <laughs> so downloading videos was a mm-hmm. oh no, basically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, and, and so, but now, I mean, and hey, you know, that's not me putting these guys down. These kids have obviously put in that kind of work, like these, see these 16 year olds, like, we're talking about the new wave of bands, right? Um, like Tim Hansen of Polyphia, there's like videos on his YouTube when he was 16 of just pulling up some of the most insane shit ever. And you're like, what the hell is this? Um, and I, I actually love the fact that he's, he still uses all that technique and everything that he's learned, but he's kind of created, he's almost him and like Polyphia and John, They've kind of come out with their own genre. I don't think anyone can really define it right now. Everyone's trying to figure out where do they fit in, and 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 all of them are like, it doesn't matter. This is what we love, right? Um, and it, it's kind of like that old British grunge tone, like you know, very low gain, but you know, it, it just it has this really nice tone about it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The the Chon, the first time I watched them, I was like what is happening right now there was a time when paul paul gilbert and bruce Bouillet used to be the two people to be feared and then john turned up and i was like hang on they're younger than those two guys <laughs> what's going I, I think it is youtube i mean like you know as i was saying a little bit earlier when you're learning you just if or, or if you're in your 30s and you want to start learning you want to get a teacher so that you just avoid making a whole bunch of mistakes and losing time going down those rabbit holes and I, i'm assuming this is what happened with john which was from the moment they wanted to play a guitar, they got a nice guitar. They got a good teacher. I, I think, I don't know what their story is, but even just with YouTube, they would have found out so many things. I mean, the classic story you were saying about trying to pick up stuff by ear is, uh, you, you know, knowing where on the fretboard to play certain things. And I think the classic story a lot of people have was when they first heard Eddie Van Halen tapping. They're like, what? Uh, how, how, did, how did he get from there to then? Like, yeah. You know, a whole bunch of people are going... Oh, whole bunch of people trying to go like it's not working <laughs> and then he's like no that's never how i played it yeah uh i mean that guy the, oh my god uh i remember seeing him seeing him do was it eruption and just like being completely blown away going oh my god um, Steve Vai is another guy, just, um, Jason Becker. Oh my God. Um, and he's still making music. He's like, you know, testament to tell people that the limits are in your mind, you know, oh, absolutely, um, yeah. it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, yeah. Uh, can't believe it. <laughs> Steve Vai, I think is going to go down in history as someone who, really changed the game because it wasn't just about crazy shred i mean i don't listen to a lot of vibe but i would probably put him in my top two to three influences because he's so expressive on the instrument and Mm -hmm. he's just like don't just hit a note don't don't just do that like bend it pull into it like use your volumes don't just go maybe maybe do some of that maybe or maybe uh, or, or something else I'm trying to figure out right now is he, I think he swells into a note. So... It's, and 
I've seen interviews where he's like, I will spend a whole day trying to like just get the tone absolutely perfect on these things. I can believe it, but every record he puts out is just masterful. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I also like how it's the whole instrumental music is kind of making a comeback, you know, um, in, in such a big way. Um, you know, like Animals and Leaders, uh, I don't know if you guys have, yeah, so, like Tosin Abassi, um, absolutely insane guitar player. Uh, so good. And it's just so cool to like have all these influences. So what's scary to think about all of these new players that have come to the scene now, imagine the next generation, because they're going to stand on the shoulders of these guys. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I mean, even when Al, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I remember that first Animals. Is I think the first track they ever released was called like Time Thief or something like that or Racing Time. I, I don't remember that it had the word time in it. And I was just like, what am I listening to right now? Like, what's happening? And then yeah. the is all like, oh, yeah, I, I, by the way, I also slapped the guitar. I was like, what the hell? Yeah. But it's, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, if that's, we, we thought the Steve Vai bar was too high, but then he <laughs> yeah. just took it there. And like, you know, 15 years from now, I, I don't even know where the bar is going to be. Yeah. It's, so it's awesome. It's absolutely awesome. Two eight string guitar players in that band. I mean, it, like, yeah, <laughs> enough said. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> the thing I always wonder about bands like this is how did they find each other? Because no, no one person in that band is a slouch, right? The drummer oh, is, yeah. is incredible. Second guitar player is incredible. Having said that, now that I think about it, I reckon it's a law of numbers thing, which is for every one animals as leaders, there was probably like another 50 bands that... Um, didn't quite make it or uh, they thought there was one weak member that was always holding them back. I, I, I learned this interesting concept recently called survivorship bias, which is when you see a success story, you try to, you tend to ask those people what made them successful. And then they'll say to you, oh yeah, it's because we did, you know, we, we used this promoter or we tapped into that market or it's because we did our advertising in this way. And they'll give you all the things that they think made them successful. And people try to replicate those things. What you don't spend enough time on is what caused the others to fail? Like what was the thing that held those people back? So it might just be, you, I, I strongly suspect a lot of times the answer will be like, you know what, our, our drummer just was weak. Like we just never had the solid rhythm behind us. Or someone would say, you know what, none of us ever turned up on time to practice and we just never practiced enough or stuff mm -hmm. like this. And so it's really important to get those stories. Because again, coming back to glamorizing, Megadeth, oh my God, like Dave Mustaine's, I don't know what, 55? And he's still like, yeah, man, I, I used to sleep in the back of my car and sell cocaine to 16 euros. And, 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 I, just, and, and I worked hard and I made it. And it's like, dude, you're a multimillionaire now. You can let go, bro, <laughs> let go. But, he, but everyone focuses on, you know, he gives you this story of how he did this particular thing, did that particular thing, X, Y, Z. For every one dude, for, for every one dude who is sleeping in the back of his car selling cocaine to 16-year-olds, there were like another hundred who whose bands never got off the ground. And and sometimes you gotta go find out, well, why didn't your bands get off the ground? What what is it that held you back in, entirely? So yeah. And I think it was um 
oh, I can't remember, but there was a, I think it was Chris Cornell and I was watching an interview uh, of his where he was talking about dynamics and stuff and how, um, you know, in Soundgarden, it was just like everyone just kind of vibed off each other and like it was just a really good fit. Uh, and they were amazing. Soundgarden, like, oh man, uh, Black Hole Sun, like, you know, every time that comes on, it's just like greatest song. Fell on Black Days, another favorite. Oh man, can't go wrong with those. <laughs> no, totally. I, I and, reckon one of the one of the big successes of Soundgarden was their, their drum was so tight, man. So like Matt Cameron, such a great player, so underrated. Mm-hmm. And I because like Kim Tyler, he's a little bit fast and loose, and he's and everyone focuses on him. They're like, oh, he's got this almost Jimmy Page vibe where he's like kind of it's like he's slightly behind the beats, slightly behind the notes, all of this. And and you tend to forget that actually it's Matt Cameron's like keeping that thing in the pocket the whole time, which is why the train is moving as fast as it is. And it's interesting, and and, and I know I'm gonna maybe say some controversial shit here, but um back me up if you feel i'm right or or not you know and everyone talks about like we've talked about all these like really technical players and some amazing outfits let's kind of switch gears and talk about like nirvana it's a band that influenced me to kind of get into music right it was the first time i heard uh the first music i heard of nirvana was the live in new york the acoustic and then someone's like oh so you haven't heard you know, never mind. And then they put on the album and I was like, my head blew off. And I was like, this is amazing. Um, and Dave Grohl, I was watching an interview of his, was talking about how Kurt just wanted to write stuff that was simple, catchy, and it was just tight, like really simple, but, and it worked. And, you know, there's just the three of them and with his vocals, and they just had this iconic sound that they made. Like, what do you guys think really made them so special? I I have a very controversial answer to this, but Evan, if you if your answer is less controversial, you can you can go for it. I, no, I know I know this is I, I I am leading the witness here with this one. So, fellas, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead, Steve. You go. I think. So Kurt Cobain had this whole aesthetic of being like anti-establishment and against the man and all of this. And again, you know, I was saying about aesthetics that draw people to music, right? I think or he either he realized and he didn't say anything about it or he just didn't realize it was he was successful because of the establishment and what it did for him. Like yeah. Bleach is a fun album to listen to, right? And you listen to it and it's like, oh, it's pretty good, right? Uh, obviously the production, the mastering all is a little bit lacking, but you're like, oh, the vibes on this thing. How many thousands of other bands were putting out records that were probably that good? Like a couple of years ago, I went on tour with an Alice in Chains tribute band and there was this band from Birmingham who were on that bill called Third Angle Projection and they're basically flying the flag and their songs are every bit as good. And I was like, why are these dudes not successful or that successful, right? Nirvana had a tight rhythm section Grohl and uh, Novoselic, they were like tight with each other, right? So Kurt Cobain was shabby as hell as a guitar player, let's, let's call it. I mean, respect to the guy, you know, that was the aesthetic he went for and that was the attitude that he brought to the table. And so that was awesome. But he was shabby as hell. Yeah. And his rhythm section was tight. So like people could still dance to the music. And when you listen to Nevermind, 
come on the production on that thing was awesome like they got uh what was it geffen records they yeah. they, they hired yeah. like a great producer a great mixing engineer to get the best sounds the best tones and then there are all these like um interviews with Kurt Cobain was like no man it's too slickly produced bro that's why you were successful because your record sounded awesome and he got the best performances out of you and he got the best performances out of everyone in the room and and then they did in utro and he's like yeah i just i just want that like raw sound bro you had the raw sound but guess what your mixing engineer still fixed a ton of stuff in the background that made it yep. sound like a good record so my answer is controversial i love nirvana respect to kurt cobain like he did some amazing stuff yes they wrote catchy songs but there was a whole set of like establishment that helped them get where they were okay yeah fair enough yeah i know but it's it is an interesting point right um because you can do so much in the studio to perfect like what the the sound you're trying to produce um I definitely think um, his lyrics had a lot. This is my personal view. Um, I think his lyrics were catchy as hell. Uh, and that really vibed with a lot of people. Um, and it was, you know, to your point, like very, you know, the anti-establishment, like, you know, talked about rape culture and like things that maybe weren't so much talked about in music at that time. And like, you know, that, how grunge as like a kind of tone uh, became like a big deal around then with all of that. So I think it was a mix of all of those things and the package of, you know, this three piece Seattle band that just came out and did weird stuff, which just sounded awesome. <laughs> so Metallica right now is celebrating, I think 30 years of the black album and they've put out a podcast called Metallica podcast. And I've just listened to episode two, which is where they talk about the role of Bob Rock, who came in and produced that album. Wait, and wait, it, well, Metallica have a podcast? <laughs> yeah, they, it's, it's, yeah, just, just uh, like for the celebration of the Black Album. Oh my God, okay. Podcast. All right, continue. But <laughs> ep- episode two is called Bob Rocks. And this is a hella insightful episode. And anyone who's wanting to put out a record or whatever, I would encourage them to listen to this because okay. it really goes into the role of what a producer does in the studio. Because they talk about the difference between Justice for All and Blackout. Justice for All, like, all these eight-minute songs, like, shredding like hell. is like, prog rocky. It's awesome, right? But even they realize they're, like, they would go out and play these songs live. And people are, like, looking at the ceiling. And they're looking at their watch and stuff. And, you know, some people totally vibe to it. And, but not everyone does. And with the Black Album, Bob Rock got scientific as hell. So mm-hmm. Bob Rock says things in the interviews, like, you know, sometimes you slow down the tempo just to like make it grunge a bit more. And then he talked about how he convinced them to detune down uh, one step for sad but true. He's like, so the the actual quote is, he said to Hetfield like, why are all your songs in E, man? And Hetfield's like, because uh, it's the lowest note. He's like, yeah, but why don't you just detune your guitar like Sabbath and stuff did that? And he's like, huh. So with sad but true, he actually got them to slow down the tempo. He got them to... um detune and there's like all sorts of uh like a producer will look at your song and polish all the parts and the producer is kind of in tune with the audience at the end of the day so they'll be like you know what you've got like four extra bars after the chorus that they're just kind of wasting time they're not really adding anything so why don't you just remove those you know and and 
that's what that person will bring to the table. So I think there's a lot to be said for the role of a producer in, in the studio. That's interesting because uh, those, um, there was an interview of Tim Henson of Palafia that I was watching. And one of the questions that they asked uh, was if you had to build an ideal band, what that would look like. And he's like, and he started off with, I don't know if he started, but you know, pretty early on, he said, oh, I think one of the most important things that I would look out for would be a really good producer. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, sorry, Evan. I know you were about to jump in over there earlier on. Uh, no, I kind of forgot uh, what uh, I wanted to say then. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just to address what you guys said about Nirvana, I think probably the best way to sum up what happened for them was the stars just lined up for them. You know, everything just came together. It was not just like one element uh, that that sort of. Uh, resulted in their success. Uh, so I think the stars just aligned with them. And uh, with regards to uh, having a producer, I think that's absolutely true because he's the one who's going to tell you if your song lacks soul, uh, what it lacks, what, uh, um, or, you know, you could sing, uh, play the exact same note, but he's the one, a good producer will tell you, no, you've got to make that note sing. You can't just like, play that note and things like that. So he's the person who's gonna do that for you. So I do agree that having a producer helps. Um, but then unfortunately that's uh, not really applicable for most bedroom musicians, but there could be like a good side to it as well. Uh, it's maybe because there's no uh, producer to tell like these this new wave of guitarists what to do or new wave musicians what to do they're actually able to come up with something different because uh, an experienced producer may have well rejected whatever they were trying to do uh, and then so so I think there are like pros and cons to uh, sort of um, having a producer but then I think it's it's not really whether you should have a producer it's rather more when you should bring in a producer i think that's probably more key interesting that's a good point yeah that's yeah a really good point i i just thought of another analogy in all of this uh you're coming back to like what we've been saying about bands and uh, professionalism and all of this i think a band is a product or, or, or rather the song is a product in the way that any other commercial endeavor has a product. So Baron used to work in aviation, yeah? Um, if you ask the public, oh, what do you think of Emirates Airlines? They're like, oh, nice seats, man, and the food is great, and the service is awesome. And then more or less those are the three, oh, and it's always on time, right? More or less those are three things. But like, there's so much focus on like the seats and the in-flight entertainment and the quality of the screen and da, 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 da. And people will just like hate airlines because the seats are rubbish, and which is okay. fair enough. Um, and what they're ignoring is the 10,000 other things that go into like an airline being successful. You have whole logistics team on the ground. You have like a security team. You've got like radar teams that are like, you, you know, checking the flight schedules and is it safe to take off? Is it not safe to take off? All of these things, so many things behind the scenes. And because all of those people were successful, they got no, like if they're all successful, they get no praise, but everything just moves 
smoothly and everyone goes oh but uh, my meat my meal didn't have enough uh spice in the chicken and right uh, people yeah. focus on the small thing but what you forget is like the song is only like a fraction of what went into that band and i think for anyone going into music this is something to bear in mind like the song and your shredding and and on all of that that it's very much the focal point but it's a relatively small percentage of what went into that band being successful a lot of it is behind the scenes stuff organization talking to the right people at the right time as you said evan like choosing when to get in a producer and that person looks at your songs and goes, oh, okay maybe you should add this maybe you should subtract that and all of this so I, I know I'm sounding like total downer by like comparing music to work, but I think but it, it kind is of product, is though, right? Like it, yeah, it is a career and I kind of relate it with like movies. So like traditionally, I mean, there's different lengths, but a lot of movies take up to like a year or so to like sit down, make and the post editing and stuff like that. But it's always the stars that kind of get the glory, maybe the director a little bit, writer a little bit um but it's like the cast like to put together all of the other bells and whistles to kind of make it that finished product um it's it's a huge task and it's the same thing i think with like bands because i look at a band like a company and the you know you go in you find your producers your labels and stuff and in fact, I don't actually think bands make any money because like everything's like a, what is it? A dollar or something, you know? And nowadays it's not even that. You just kind of get a subscription on iTunes or Spotify or YouTube or whatever. And it, how much how much really gets rolled back to a band? I think they really make money off of concerts a little bit, but more than that, I think it's really endorsements and like, you know, your signature products and, um, you know, stuff like that and, and how you kind of give back into the, the industry with, you know, your knowledge of music and how you work on products and stuff like that. So, I mean, Evan, can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Because, like, I know because you mentioned how you've signed on with, uh, with these brands. Okay. Well, when it comes to endorsements, I think it's not uh, what most people think. Uh, most people think like you get like free guitars and stuff. And I think people rarely make money off endorsements because unless you're Petrucci or Paul Gilbert at that sort of level. Um, but I think when it comes to endorsements, um, I think what they do for you uh, that's most important is the support uh, they give you. Um, and like sort of like all that behind the scenes support. Um, so I've had to pay for uh, my guitar, but obviously I got it at like a much better rate than most people would get it in retail. Uh, but I think what sort of made my relationship with uh, Ernie Ball and Man Stronger was the fact that they were sort of supportive throughout, uh, you know, whether I needed uh, something more or what, whatever it may be. So. So that's just slowly um, uh, addressing uh, endorsements. Um, and then there was like a second part to your question. I kind of lost that. Uh, what was it again? Um, I had something to say as well, but I can't seem to remember it. I, so I was talking a little bit about, um, so I think that was a, like you've answered the endorsements part, but I think it's just, I look at bands as a company, right? And then they don't really make money from the album sales. Um, as much as from products and like how they give back to the industry. 
Ah, yeah, I think that's very true because from writing songs, like you said, they literally earn like nothing from, from the songs themselves. But I think what the songs do for them is that they get them the traction they need, provided obviously they get the, a good marketing team, team and things like that. Um, and I think you're absolutely right when it comes to uh, them putting their knowledge back into the industry. That's why you see people like, uh, let's say, Periphery, for example, uh, Nolly Get Good, Anisha Mansour. Uh, those are people who put in their time into creating uh, more gear, uh, like pedals and stuff, and also more tech, uh, like plugins. So you have like Get Good Drums, you have like, um, uh, I think Nolly worked with uh, new DSP for a plug with a, uh, to make a plugin as well. So I think um, you're absolutely right that the band itself don't really make them a lot of money. Maybe some from shows, some from merch, but then I think a lot of it has to do with um, whatever else they do on the side, outside the band, using their knowledge in music. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's, I completely, that's at least that's what I've been thinking as well um let's see where we at here all right so final question for you guys as we wind down uh, and this will be a fun easy one maybe a stressful one um if you if you guys are stuck on an island and and you had three albums to to listen to what would that be I, i'm not saying one because that would just drive people insane but so let's say three albums what would you pick Evan, do you want to go first? Do you want oh, yeah, sure. Why not? Um, I don't know. To be honest, I can't pinpoint an album that I would take on an island with me, but I'm probably guessing something to do with uh, orchestral elements because I love um, uh, uh, people who write epic stuff like Hans Zimmer, Thomas Ferguson, um, and uh, so if I had to pick three albums, I can't name the album, but I'll probably say I'll probably have one orchestral one. I'll probably okay. one have one that's uh, a band, it's going to be a periphery or dark tranquility, uh, but it has to be like a band. I don't think I will have like a soloist project uh, as one of the three, but I'll probably have the third one as something that's not related to metal or rock. Just to give myself a break, you know, because you sort of have like epic music and then you have like rock slash metal. And then I, I'm guessing the third one probably have to be something of the complete opposite. Yeah, but I, unfortunately, unfortunately, I can't really name any albums right now because I listen to so much and I, I just enjoy all of it. And it will be incredibly difficult for me to actually pinpoint an album. That's really sweet and honest, and we'll pick on you for on that after the podcast. <laughs> but thank you for that. No, I'm just joking. Yeah. But that's that's actually really that's that's a really interesting mix, Stevo. Uh, this is hard. Uh, obviously, I'm a fan of the heavy music, and as as you know, I'm Rush is the number one thing in my heart. In fact, I was even drinking my coffee out of a Canada mug. I did that for you, Varn. Uh, uh, You're a true friend. You're a gentleman. For anyone watching this podcast, uh, Varn is a Canadian citizen. <laughs> um, it, yeah, I'd, I'd, I would take uh, maybe one of the Rush live albums, I suppose. Uh, they, uh, they, they did a, uh, a really great album on the Snakes and Arrows tour. So I think I would take that. 
because they they just speak to me on many many levels mm-hmm. i would probably take a dream theater album it's hard to pick which one, one? oh yeah hard <laughs> i'm gonna go with six degrees of inner turbulence that's mine like, too is it okay yeah yeah that's not what everyone I was thinks of say. it and and there's so many great albums, right? But yeah. I would go at six degrees. Like I believe it or not, that's my gym album. Like when I go to the gym, like that's what gets me through some of the lifts. That's my <laughs> life, favorite. Dude, save uh, life. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite DT album. Yeah. Oh my yeah. god, that was they hit a peak with that. The production is awesome. The tones, the instruments, the playing, everything. The third one, oh, it probably changes week to week. I think, but. I would take a Jamiroquai album. They've got a greatest hits compilation called High Times. And I just love it because it's a combination of like your head's always moving. But also on a musical level, it's kind of, it's, it's really interesting to listen it's to. Great. Like, there's a lot going on there. Yeah. And it's such a fun album. So those would be my three. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I definitely didn't prepare. Like, so this podcast happened very quickly. So we all didn't prepare. All of this was just, really us having a conversation about things we love. So trust me when I say I, this is not me. I didn't prepare. So um, Six Degrees as well for me, Dream Theater. Um, Silver Chair Diorama, um, one of my favorite bands. And, uh, you know, they have a lot of the orchestral stuff in there. So I really, and it's a very diverse album. Uh, and they kind of, that was when they really started changing from being like very, nirvana wannabe band as what a lot of people said or like um uh alt rock and stuff and it was very complex stuff so i quite that album uh just can i connect with it at a very deep level um so that's two the third one feels wrong not to choose metallica (laughs) but i too want to have something that's not like rock so um I might go with the very first weekend album, uh, House of Balloons, The Weekend. Yeah. I don't know that one. Oh, some good choices. Silver Chairman, that's a, wow, that's a great choice. But specifically Diorama, that album specifically. Yeah. Uh, I can keep listening to that. There's, you know, as much as I love that band, um, like any album, you can't, you keep listening to it, you kind of get tired of it, but that album diorama is something about it it's just got so much to it i can keep yeah can do it so you're stuck on an island right so there you go choose wisely <laughs> I, I i always love the whole if you were stuck on a desert island which albums are you taking i'm like i kind of feel like you would have much larger problems if you were stuck on an album <laughs> on an island <laughs> like, what, would the, what movie would you pick I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'd be dead in like a couple of days. So, right. Castaway. So, I would use Castaway for inspiration. It's like, step one, fashion a harpoon. <laughs> How to build step fire two. like Tom Hanks. <laughs> yeah. hey, Tom Hanks wasn't sitting there going, oh, I really liked uh, Jagged Little Pill. So, uh, I'm going to take that with me on my DHL flight. Yeah, you got to have some Alanis Morissette, you know? Um, but do you see how shredded he got? That's like, that's what I want. I want I'm that super body. super shredded, man. Yeah. yeah, proper caveman look. And his beard was glorious. <laughs> it was glorious. I think the hardest part was when he had to extract his own tooth with his. With, that was like real man uh, stuff. You just like, oh yeah, would what, I do that in that situation? Did he do it with like ice skates or something? Yeah, an ice skate. Yeah, right. Oh my skate. god. 
yeah, that was painful to watch. <laughs> All right, guys, thanks so much for your time. This was super fun. Um, thank you for being on the Descent podcast. Evan, pleasure to connect with you, buddy. Stay safe out thanks there, you guys, me. and I'll catch up with you soon. All right. Thanks. Thank yeah, you for organizing. Yeah, thanks for doing this. Thanks man. for organizing this, Vernon. This is awesome. And Evan, good All to right. see you, bro. Yeah, likewise. All right, take care, man. All right. See you, see you guys.